Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Today on World Footprints, we'll embark on an around-the-world race with skipper Donald Lawson. We'll journey among the people of the rainforest with Maya Rhodes author Mary Jo McConaughey. And we'll discover ethical designs in the fashion house of Aida Fontenot. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to World Footprints, the leading voice in socially conscious and responsible travel and lifestyle. We're your hosts, Tanya Nian Fitzpatrick, and we're going on a real eclectic and exciting journey today. Today on World Footprints, we'll see history in the making with skipper Donald Lawson as he endeavors to become the first African-American to sail solo in an around-the-world race. Really, the preparation around-the-world race takes years of preparation. And, you know, if you don't have the resources, you have to break it out over time. And that's why I've done. Mary Jo McConaughey is a journalist, traveler, documentary filmmaker. But at the heart of it all, she's a writer. Her newest book, Maya Rhodes, draws upon three decades in Central America's remote and dangerous landscapes. I was told once, and I think it's really true, that war is great for conservation. And I saw that to be the case in Nicaragua. I saw it to be the case in Guatemala. What does it mean to be an ethical designer? We'll find out when fashion designer Aida Fontenot joins us to talk about her green mission to empower women and protect the environment. I want the the dress or whatever I'm making to look beautiful, and then, you know, if if you can, there's no reason why you shouldn't do something to support the environment. It's really not that difficult. This is World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Visit us and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. Skipper Donald Lawson is making history on the water. He is one of just a few African-American professional sailors who holds the titles Skipper and Captain, and he's working towards breaking barriers in the sport of sailing. Donald anticipates becoming the first African-American sailor to race around the world solo, but before he embarks, we're going to try to convince him that he should take this new adventure radio crew with him. Donald, welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. I always shamelessly try to plug our way into, you know, a trip, and the water resonates with me. I'm a water baby, so. Oh, yeah? Cool. Absolutely. Now, distinguish between a skipper and a captain. My understanding is a captain commands uh, a cargo or merchant ship that generally transports humans or, or products, whereas a skipper commands a smaller vessel. Am I in the ballpark? Well, a uh, skipper is more of the um, slang term for captain. Uh, captain is a rank that you earn through either promotion or training. Uh, so you look at the U.S. Navy, for example, you have a rank of captain. Well, we also use that term to signify the person in command of the vessel. That would be, uh, use a slang, a skipper. So, uh, so we kind of use them interchangeably because uh, people nowadays don't really care too much. Mm-hmm. But um, in order to become a captain and be respected as a skipper, you have to have certifications, um, experience, and uh, gone through the ranks to be respected by your peers. So they're both certification um even though they're they're used interchangeably, they're both they both require certifications. But are they different certifications or no? No, not really. I mean, ca- like I have a captain's license through the U.S. Merchant Marine, which is pretty cool because most people that in my sport don't have that. Uh, but a skipper 
that was required to be a skipper is a person who generally owns a boat and has a crew that uh, follows his, his or her instructions. So since I am acquiring a boat soon, uh, it will be my boat, I'll be the skipper. And because I have a certification and experience, I'm also a captain. Gotcha, gotcha. So how long have you been sailing professionally? Uh, professionally, about 10 years. Okay. I uh, began sailing as a kid, uh, six years old, by going to camps and uh and actually teaching sailing for about 13, 14 years. But I didn't realize I could get paid <laughs> to sail <laughs> until I was in college. And uh, when that happened, I was like, oh, <laughs> all this time I was for free. So um, I started getting paid to uh, race and teach. I haven't looked back since. <laughs> where, where does this love for water uh, exploration really come from? Uh, my parents. Uh, my mom was a big Trekkie growing up, and uh, she got me into Star Trek as a young kid. And so I, I started, you know, looking at space and exploration. And uh, but she also kind of tricked me into going sailing as a kid uh, because I had a fear of water. You know, I grew up in the black community. Uh, most of us, you know, don't like being around large bodies of water. But um, so, she, but she got me to go. And once I got on the boat, the boat didn't sink. It floated nicely, and I got to steer the boat, which was really cool. And I got to the technology involved in the boat, I fell in love with it. And uh, at six years old, you got to remember that, you know, I hadn't really ridden the bike much. I hadn't driven the car yet. hadn't been on an airplane yet. So that was my first taste of freedom and, and excitement. And I started dreaming about sailing around the world, you know, because that's the ultimate thing you can do in, in the sport of sailing. Mm-hmm. So once that happened, uh, that became my life goal, and I started working toward it and everything I did. Where, where did you grow up? I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, it's a little joke. Baltimore County and Baltimore City are um, kind of two different areas. I grew up, started off in Baltimore City, and then my father, once he got his promotions and his job, was able to move out into the county. I went to Woodlawn High School for engineering uh, in the county. So uh, I'm a Baltimore Raven lover, Baltimore crab cake lover. I'm Baltimore for life. <laughs> well, you know, you're just up the street from us. We're in Silver Spring. Oh, really? Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So understand the Raven, you know, love for Ravens. My, I'm a Raven fan uh, by default oh, because of my husband and uh, certainly the <laughs> crab cake. So. <laughs> All right. See? Good man. Yeah, yeah. Now, now you're making, and, and I understand, you know, the area that you grew up with and, and uh, you know, understand the dynamics of growing up in a large city like Baltimore and um, becoming acquainted with a large body of water, the Atlantic Ocean here for us, um, you know, for the first time, I understand how uh, frightening that is for uh, a lot of people in the community. But you're working really to make the sport of sailing more accessible to African Americans and what are some of the challenges you've had to overcome in breaking through the the glass ceiling so to say and uh, what are some of the barriers uh, that African Americans continue to face well the biggest barrier African Americans have is ourselves Uh, we have a lot of fear and uh, fear of the unknown is one of the uh, crutches of mankind and uh, when I talk to folks about my sailing especially the black community they get really uh, fearful, they look at me like oh my goodness hope I get to see them again <laughs> everything. or mm. or they 
they're, they're, they're like, well, I can't swim, or I can't do this, or well, the boat sinks. The same things I had to deal with when I was growing up. But um, the one thing I always tell people is you don't have to love sailing like I do. You don't have to, uh, you know, become a world-class sailor, you know, because that's what I do and that's what I want to be. Um, but you should try it because it's good to um, open up different horizons. You get to learn about yourself. You get to learn about nature more. You know, a lot of people don't realize about global warming because <laughs> they've never seen nature before. You know, a lot of people uh, in our community, black community, they're only exposed to concrete and brick buildings. So when you tell them, hey, there's, you know, a forest out in Maryland in the county, they're like, really? What's that? So exposure is one of the best things that can happen for the culture. Well, what are some of the, the things that you're doing in preparation for your, your solo race around the world? Um, <clears throat> well, I've been working on this uh, since 2004. Uh, my mentor, uh, named Bruce Schwab, he's uh, the first American to ever uh, complete the around the world race nonstop. And um, I got to go out sailing with him and train on his boat um, for about a half a year. And then I began racing and practicing and sailing with other boats out in the ocean as well. And doing other races, and really the prepare for a round the world race takes years of preparation. And you know, if you don't have the resources, you have to break it out over time. And that's what I've done. So I have completed captain's courses, I have completed celestial navigation courses, and weather courses, and electronic courses, and uh, sea survival courses, and first aid and CPR. I've gone through um, lots of certifications and put up thousands of miles in the ocean. And, you know, sailing is a sport, so your body, you have to hear your body as well. So uh, I have workout routines I have to do. I do swimming courses. I do um, lots of different things because um, you don't want to be a liability to your boat <laughs> when you're off the racing. If your boat's perfect and you're, you're not, you know, you don't want to slow the boat down. So it's an ongoing process. And just like you would have <clears throat> in basketball, you look at guys like Ray Allen who spends hours in the gym shooting basketball. That's the same thing you have to do in sailing. You have to put hours and days in sailing to you know, get your skills proficient and make sure you know what to do in every scenario that happens out there. Because mm-hmm. in a solo race, you're by yourself. You can't ask for help. You know, there's no one to say, hey, can you come over here and help me pull this line. you got to have the energy and the intelligence to do it on your own. Are you essentially racing against yourself or are you entering? Is there a race that you're preparing to enter that will uh, include other sailors? Yeah, the rate, we're, we're looking to enter into um, a round-the-world race. Uh, we're not going to announce what's one yet because there's actually two. Uh, so we're uh, negotiating with sponsors right now about what's one we're going to do. But um, when you go out there, you're generally competing against anywhere between 10 to 30 boats, and you're all following the same racetrack. And as you're out there competing, <clears throat> you know, you have your competition on the water, but they're going through the same thing you're going through. And sometimes the elements, and the ocean is a bigger competitor than your um, other human beings are. And there's times when you have to depend on each other. If something goes wrong on one of my competitor's boats and the boat's sinking, guess who has to rescue them? Probably me or one of the other competitors. So, you know, the ocean is a competitor you really never really defeat. You just kind of survive it. And, and that uh, comes with experience, knowing how to get into build situations. Mm-hmm. Um, these round the world races are not for the faint of heart. You know, you have to really have a love and passion for what you're doing. And um, 
competitors are very seasoned. Uh, a lot of the folks uh, may not know their names in the households, but in the sporting arenas, uh, a lot of these guys are pretty famous and have been knighted and that kind of stuff in England and stuff like that. So um, it's really cool. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you raised a, an interesting question about, or a comment about the, um, the the elements, and one of the, the questions that always comes up when I talk to other sailors, people who have sailed around the world and uh, have kind of circumnavigated uh, the world are, you know, safety concerns, and other than, you know, piracy comes to mind, um, mechanical difficulties, uh, and, of course, unpredictable weather. But are there other safety concerns that you have to be cognizant of and, and be prepared for as well? Yes. The hardest um, part of actually sailing around the world by yourself is actually sleep um, because you're not able to get a full night's sleep at all the entire race. And so... You're only at 50% most of the time. You know, you're only at 20% <laughs> if you're not able to get any sleep. And um, I just did a, um, a training trip, for example, from Bermuda around Long Island to New York City. And uh, it was 800 miles out in the ocean on a 21-foot boat. And during that trip, um, the first two days, I had some big storms, 20-foot uh, waves smashing into the boat and stuff. And it got really rough out there. And I didn't get much sleep. But it got worse <laughs> because... Um, my power systems cut off, and I was, um, let's see here, about 300 miles from Bermuda, and I had 400, 600 miles to go to um, New York. So I had to keep going without any power for five and a half days, which meant I got four hours of sleep over those last five and a half days, sailing through the busiest shipping port in the world. And uh, But those kind of things happen. You know, when you're out there, you're by yourself, you don't have a choice. If you want to survive and come home, then you deal with the situation and you come home. So what type of craft will you be sailing on? Have you identified it yet? Have you acquired it? And and why did you select the particular uh, uh, sail craft that you're going to be uh, using? For the race we're looking at, uh, the types of boats are called open 60s. They're 60 feet long, uh, they're about 15 feet deep, and about 100 feet tall. And uh, they're made of all carbon fiber. Uh, they have hydraulic kill systems, which is um, the big blade on the boat. You're able to lift it towards the higher side of the boat to keep it balanced. They're very, very technical boats. Uh, most of the boats now are all electric. They use very, very little diesel, and they're very, very fast. Uh, they only weigh about 8 tons. Uh, and you compare that to a boat like the America's Cup's older boats, 12 meters, they weigh about 80 tons. So they're very, very light, very, very fast. Uh, we liken them to NASCAR stock cars because <laughs> mm-hmm. they can take a uh, beating. But um, those boats have proven to be able to do the job in a safe way. Uh, as long as you sail them with respect and sail them correctly. Uh, I have sailed on three of those boats, and they're very, very good boats. I trust those, mo- those more I trust any other boat I've ever sailed on the ocean with. And um, we're looking at a couple of boats in France because um, that's where the best boats have been built over the last couple of years, and uh, we're looking to acquire it within the next couple of weeks. Um, if we're able to do that in time, then we'll have it here in the state probably late November. So oh. that's the target for there. Okay. Well, I think that that warrants a um, a visit by the World Footprints. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, what, we'll, what we're planning to do, actually, uh, we, we'll, is we'll probably bring it to Baltimore for a week or so uh, for the purpose of uh, media and sponsors and stuff to take a look at the boat and see it, maybe even go take a sail out there if it's not too cold for them. And then from there, uh, we may end up delivering it up to Maine 
because um, uh, my mentor has uh, lots of experience on these boats. He's probably the top expert in this country on open 60s. Um, so he'll probably have it there out of the water in, in a hangar um, to get worked on for a few, uh, few months. Mm-hmm. And then we'll hit the water again in March, something like that, to begin testing and practicing and stuff. So that's kind of our schedule for the time being. Okay. So, so this first race um, that you're planning on, where will it be launching from? And will the public be able to to follow you? I mean, have you guys planned to have that time if, you know, with social network, you know, the proliferation of social networking, um, will people be able to follow you in real time either, you know, through live stream or Facebook or Twitter? And and where will you be launching from if you if you uh, import? The, the, the race around the world, um, the one we will choose, there's two for us to choose from. Both of them start in France. So, um, and they, they generally generate huge crowds. Um, one race reduces 2 million fans um, at the actual site of the start. So, if you want to watch the start live, you can do that. Um, there's online following, there's a live tracker where you can know where I am every 15 minutes. Um, there's also cameras on board the boat. So we're planning to actually uh, film a reality show of our journey as well and um, actually try to air it on TV so people actually can see what it's actually like to do what we're doing. Uh, there's also um, an online video game where you can race against me. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of cool. Uh, you can race against the whole fleet, really, uh, online. And uh, last year, there's a race from France to the Caribbean uh, called the Route de Rum about almost 200,000 people raced online against the fleet. I came in uh, 6,000th place, which is actually pretty good <laughs> online. <laughs> uh, but you know, it's really fun. Um, they've gotten good feedback on that, so they're pushing that even farther. Um, there's also daily um, video um, Skype um, conferences we do on the, from the boats as well. So each day, uh, time of the day, whether it's noon or 6 o'clock in the afternoon, we'll do a live Skype where people can go on the website and actually see us and talk to us a little bit and ask questions and that kind of stuff. So we can so, actually do a broadcast, a uh, live broadcast. Absolutely. Okay, en route. Excellent. Well, Donald, what, what is your website so people can find you and kind of keep up with your, your progress as you prepare for these races? Our website is on DonaldLawsonRacing.com. Okay. So Donald like Duck, Lawson as in law and then the word son, Racing.com. And we'll also have a link to your website on uh, our site, worldfootprints.com. Skipper Donald Lawson, thank you so much for joining us today, and we look forward to sailing with you in the near future. And that was a huge hint as we close out. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And just, and just stay in touch with us, um, and we'll make sure we get, get you guys on board. Um, one, other, one other side note is important. Our Facebook page, my personal page is now full. <laughs> So we created a fan page uh, recently so people can still follow our stuff through Facebook. So um, our, our personal page, Dow Lawson School, but Dow Lawson Racing um, Incorporated, that fan page is uh, up and running now. So you can hop on board there and um, keep track of what we're doing as well. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having us. Appreciate it. Coming up, author Mary Jo McConaughey takes us on a journey through the rainforest. I was told once, and I think it's really true, that 
war is great for conservation. And I saw that to be the case in Nicaragua. I saw it to be the case in Guatemala. Next, as World Footprints Radio continues. Hi, my name is Timothy Kendrick. I'm Grace Kendrick. And we love World Footprints Radio. And I'm a transplant from Michigan here in Vancouver and loving it. We love the radio. Thank you. Back to school time again, and our retailers at NationwideMall.com are offering tremendous bargains for back-to-school shoppers. Whether it's grade school or college items you're looking for, you'll find shopping NationwideMall.com will help save you cash. We have a huge selection of stores to assist you with your back-to-school shopping needs. That's NationwideMall.com, America's online shopping mall. Hi, my name is Emmeline. I'm from Korea. I love the Footprints Radio. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. As a young woman studying Spanish in Mexico in the 1970s, Mary Jo McConaughey fell in love with the haunting beauty and mystery of the rainforest. Determined to experience the jungle firsthand, Mary Jo traveled solo through the beautiful wild region that spans southern Mexico and northern Guatemala. That first trip was the beginning of her life's work and adventures in Central America. In her new book, Maya Rhodes, One Woman's Journey Among the People of the Rainforest, Mary Jo draws upon three decades in Central America's remote and dangerous landscape where she traveled, lived, and worked as a war correspondent. Mary Jo, you started uh, your journey to Mexico as a language student, um, but you stayed and went on an adventurous journey. Um, initially, you planned to be a, a solo journey, but you met a very interesting character who you refer to as the Etcher. Tell us a little bit about that, uh, that particular chapter in your journey? At that time, I thought that women oughtn't travel alone and uh, need to travel accompanied. Remember, this was in the 1970s. And so I looked very hard for someone to go along with me, and I couldn't find anyone except I found a, a, a sweet, rather eccentric British etching artist who was one of the types, probably from the 19th century, who said, yes, I'm ready for everything, let's go. And uh, that's, that was the beginning of that. It was in San Cristobal de las Casas, which is one of the places that uh, travelers gathered and uh, caught their breath until they moved on to the next place. That was in the 1970s, of course. And you were 20 years old at the time, just a fresh out of college. Talk about your life following that first trip through uh, the, uh, the Mayan rainforest. I had always wanted to be a writer. I always had in my mind that dreamy, dreamy first visit that I made to the rainforest. It stayed with me. So I went back to the rainforest, but it wasn't that easy. I had to figure out, you know, a purpose. I mean, why would I go back? And I heard about an archaeologist who was doing the kind of archaeology that harks back to the kind of expeditionary archaeology that 
people did at the turn of the century where you took a, a whole team and you, and you tried out new ideas. And his name was Arthur Demarest, and he's very well known in the field. Um, he's a very quirky guy. I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying so. From Louisiana, I understand. He yes. is, he is. Uh, the first day I met him, he was having breakfast, and he poured hot chili all over his stew, and I was just totally amazed. I mean, this is like <laughs> 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning. And um, he said, yeah, hey, my father always said, uh, we're Cajun, we eat real food for breakfast, not animal fodder, like cereal. <laughs> so that was, the, I should have known right then that he was a character uh, to be uh, dealt with and uh, as a writer, a wonderful uh, subject. And he was. And he was also a very kind person and very open to my uh, traveling with the group. And I saw a lot and I learned a lot. And I think in another lifetime I'd like to come back as an archaeologist. <laughs> what are some of the things that you, you saw, some of the things that still resonate with you today? What I saw was a great deal of camaraderie and competition at the same time among the uh, people who were doing the dig and who were supplying the information and who were trying to break the codes that would tell them more about what Maya hieroglyphs said. It was very adventurous. It was very, very much exploring, not just physically, but, but intellectually. And anything was wide open. You know, you might suggest the oddest thing and people would talk seriously and follow it up. Uh, and it was, uh, and it all took place in the atmosphere of the most exquisite geography on earth, which is the rainforest. You know, as I was reading through your, your book, um, some of the characters that you met, I mean, they really, um, really resonated with me. And one that I'm really curious about is Juan Ramirez. One of my chapters is called Usuma Cinta. River of Dreams or the Man They Killed. And I called it that because it was a kind of journey down the Usumacinta, which is called the grandfather of Central American rivers. It's, a, it's the Mississippi of Central America and an, an exquisitely beautiful place and very wild down toward the uh, white water at the end of it. But by traveling so slowly on it, um, I heard a lot about the recent past, which was very violent and a part of history that really hadn't been recorded. I had never read about it anywhere. And uh, I often heard about the man they killed. And no one could tell me really specifically about it or when they brought it up, the, the subject would change. And a couple of times people told me, oh, you have to ask the man they killed about that. That seemed very odd. Um, and I started to think, well, is this a dream kind of that people had, or is this a metaphor for something? Um, and at the end, I find out. <laughs> and you'll just have to buy the book to, uh, to hear the rest of the story. 
There was a time I read in your book where you were actually concerned about the future of the rainforest and the, the conflict between the ancients or indigenous people and the new kids on the block. Can you talk a little bit about that? I was told once, and I think it's really true, that war is great for conservation. And I saw that to be the case in Nicaragua. I saw it to be the case in Guatemala. That is, when peace breaks out, there is much more entry into these pristine places. Often that's because people are dislocated. They need a place to live. They will cut down trees in order to plant. Even though that kind of soil, that is rainforest soil, may, it may give you a giant cob of corn the first year or two, but it quickly shrinks. This soil is just not appropriate for continued planting the way it's done in the countryside most of the time. That is continually planting the same patch. Uh, but, but it doesn't matter because if you're hungry immediately, you cut down the trees uh, so at least you'll have it uh, for, the, for, the, for the present. Uh, most of all, it's the, and I, well, I wouldn't say most of all, but equally difficult is the timber uh, entrepreneurs, legal or illegal, whether done with uh, some kind of permission from the government to whom it's a question, actually, whether the land belongs anyway. But anyway, at any rate, what uh, the timber people do is build a road. And even though it's just a path wide enough for a truck to get out. It's as if you are saying from the rainforest, come and get me, because everyone can enter then. And I've seen this. I've been in the middle of nowhere, really nowhere, on a very, very primitive path. This was near the border with Mexico, near the Salinas River in Guatemala. And there, there were a few big trees taken out, but there was no big damage. And one day coming out, actually, uh, we saw an entire line, must have been 40 or 50 Kekchi Indians with big packs on their backs and the carrying blankets and, and, and very basic uh, tools. This was the beginning of the colonization of that area. And I'm absolutely certain if I went back there now, there would be an entire thriving town and a lot fewer trees. Mm -hmm. This affects other things like uh, languages. And you, you talk about Teresa and Domingo um, it being the last few survivors of an ancient uh, rainforest language. Yes. They spoke Maya Itza. The Itza were the last independent kingdom in, of the Maya that fought the Spanish until the beginning of the 18th century. And their kingdom was in the middle of that rainforest in Patan, beautiful place. And the people who lived there, who um, survived, went over to a town, continued to speak their language until pretty recently, until the 1930s, when a ban was put on speaking indigenous languages by the dictator. And they were some of the few who were left. Very importantly, Domingo was a Maya priest, we could say, a spiritual guide, 
who spoke in the native Issa, and of course he spoke some Spanish. And later I met his nephew, who was by that time only one of eight uh, who were still speaking the Issa really properly, thoroughly, and, and deeply. And uh, he was very concerned because he too was a spiritual guide, and yet he had to call on the ancestors during ceremony for their help and their uh, to thank them uh, for what they had brought. This is one of the things you do during the ceremony. And he did not want to address them in the language of the conquerors, those who killed the brothers and sisters of the ancestors. So he was quite, um, he felt in quite a dilemma that those who would come after would have to be doing ceremony in Spanish, which was quite incongruous to him. Of course, there are a lot more problems with losing a language, uh, problems for us when some little language in the middle of nowhere, quote-unquote, uh, goes belly up and no longer exists. Look, that is a rainforest language. People there have knowledge of medicine, of seasons, mm-hmm. of elements that affect our problems right now, not only with illnesses and new illnesses, but also with global warming. And they're embedded in the way they speak. This information is embedded there. And we lose the languages. We lose that information. The selfish way to look at it. Indeed. And it, I mean, is there anything that's being done to preserve uh, these old languages, cultures, traditions? Is there anything being done? The Kichemaya language has over a million speakers. There are oh, easily over 25 Maya languages in the world. And When I say in the world, I mean that because of 8 million Maya, 15% of them live in the United States now, and of course they speak their Maya languages. Let's say the Quiche Maya, which is very numerous, uh, has numerous speakers, that persists because there are so many speakers. With the Itza, it became smaller and smaller. And I met a gentleman who was collecting all the words, putting them in a dictionary, a linguist, But he also told me very frankly, once a language comes to the point of rescue, it's gone. Mm. That's a very sad commentary, actually. It's sad, but it's something that we, uh, who are rather aware of this situation, uh, have not done anything about uh, for, for a long time. And... As a result, uh, you know, this is going on. I think people who have information, who have a bit of um, knowledge of the world, uh, take on a bit of an obligation also to act on it. Not that, you, not that you can be everything to everyone, but simply traveling is not enough. Uh, this book is... Uh, a travel book, Maya Rhodes. Of course it has history in it, it has anthropology in it. It has what I think are some rather dramatic human scenes in it. But I call it deep travel. Deep travel means knowing 
about those among whom you travel, even if it's something you kind of study up on a little bit before you go somewhere. You might not have mastered the language, but you can memorize 50 words. You can memorize 50 words before you go somewhere. And it seems to me that, um, especially these days, when we're so concerned about what people think about us, and that's a fatal concern. That, that kind of concern can lead to saving lives, or, or the absence of it can lead to, to lives being lost. Is, is that a part of the reason why you wrote this book was really to help uh, raise awareness about you know, the, the need really to uh, understand other cultures and perhaps aid in some small way as a traveler, raise awareness uh, or appreciate uh, things from, from past cultures, languages, etc.? If that's a result of this book, I'd be thrilled I wouldn't be honest if I said I wrote this book for a social purpose. That is, as a writer, you have something in you you have to write. And this was what I had to write mm-hmm. to have been saved. You know, something else that's been in the news a lot, and of course Hollywood has tapped into the, the end of the Mayan calendar. Uh, and according to the Mayan calendar, we're living in the fourth age of the world, which will end December 21st, 2012. What really does this mean to Mayan people, and and how are they preparing for the end of our world, I guess? The end of the calendar may or may not mean the end of our world. That was Hollywood's sensationalization of it, right? (laughs) Well, sure. (laughs) Um, And there are uh, more books being written about that than about the Maya themselves, that's for sure. Um, uh, it's of it's great interest, and, and I think it's a good thing that it's of great interest, because first of all, it brings attention to the Maya, who have, like any group that's been around for so long, something to teach the rest of us. There are three Maya calendars. One kind of follows ours because it's a seasonal calendar, it's an agricultural calendar, 360 days. The other is a 240-day calendar, which follows the Maya New Year and has a lot to do with the, the days on which people are born, and it's interpreted by Maya spiritual guides. And the calendar of which we're speaking here is the 5,126-year calendar, which ends next year. And there are some celestial, that is, astronomical events that are happening that are quite unusual that correspond to those dates. What Maya talk about when you ask them, especially the spiritual guides, um, is the concern about the lack of our responsibility for Mother Earth. Mother Earth was created uh, partly for humans and was created for itself, but one of humans' responsibility uh, is Mother Earth. And by shirking that, uh, this is according to the Maya and the Popol Vuh, uh, uh, 
well, the Popol Vuh, which is like the Maya Bible, uh, shows how difficult it was to create humans uh, for the gods, for the creator gods. And only, only when the, the set that they created who could give thanks and realized who made them and were aware and would use language, that became the human race that we belong to. But only as long as we pay attention. And without paying attention or with concentrating only on ourselves, for instance, then we sign our own death warrant. And this is the concern. Rather than predicting the end of the world, they don't have to do that. (laughs) And they don't do that. Instead, they say, why is everyone suddenly interested in the end date instead of being interested in what we're doing right now? Do they think that, that there is uh, something after the end date? What do they see beyond the end date? For Maya, time is not linear as it is for us. Time and space work together. Time is in cycles. Um, you know, there was probably... I'm going out on a limb saying this, I haven't discussed this with Maya scholars, but I would guess, just the logic tells us, there was probably a lot more Maya received knowledge at the time of the conquest than there is now. Because that's what uh, uh, both genocide, there have been incidents of genocide in the last 500 years, and there have just been the falling away for other reasons of the Maya information that is held communally. Um, And so a lot of uh, people who are studying this uh, among the Maya don't know answers that I would guess they might have known uh, at another time. Mm -hmm. I was just in Taos, New Mexico, which is not Maya, but where one gentleman was telling me his son had been rushed off to the hospital after a bite. And I said, aren't there any curanderos here? Aren't there any... Uh, healers that could work with him right here. And he said they've died off. They've died off in the Pueblo. Imagine that happening in thousands of places. Um, And so this is something if we want to keep as our joint uh, human collective information bank, we all have to pay attention to. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. I shared it in Maya Rhodes, and I enjoyed sharing it on this program. Thank you. Fashion designer Aida Fontana believes that beautiful fashion is ethical fashion. Yeah, I want the, the dress or whatever I'm making to look beautiful, and then, you know, if, if you can, there's no reason why you shouldn't do something to support the environment. It's really not that difficult. Next, as World Footprints continues. I'm Lord Richard, and I'm from Northern Ireland, and I have uh, a record company uh, which produces New Orleans records, jazz records from the 1960s and early 70s uh, from New Orleans. And uh, I just love World Footprints. World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors and industry professionals from environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr. 
to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals. Okay, my name is Shane. I'm a Blackfoot from the Six Gun Nation. I encourage you to tune into World Footprints Radio and come out to Blackfoot Crossing Historical Park in southern Alberta to experience the Blackfoot people and culture. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Aida Fontenot wears many artistic hats. With over 16 years of experience and training, she continues to raise the bar in the artistic genres of fine art, photography, graphic, and fashion design. Aida is most recognized as an ethical fashion designer, and her Aida collection supports a green mission to empower women and protect the environment. The collection is handmade locally with natural and recycled materials, and many designs have been spotted on the red carpet. Well, Aida, welcome to World Footprints. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Tanya. We love meeting fellow transitionists, uh, people who you know, have really found their passion. And I'm curious how you made the leap from graphic artistry to fashion artistry and photography. Well, um, you know, when I first started as a child, I went to a, a fine arts academy, um, and there I studied, you know, the foundation of art and design. And to me, you know, being an artist, um, I, can, I can apply the same principles of design to any medium. So, you know, I see the fine art as my basis, and I use graphic design as a tool to express that, and I use fashion design as a tool to express that. So, to me, it comes from the, the same part of my, my brain, but maybe the inspiration for each one or what I'm trying to express may be slightly different. So, and I actually, actually started um, making my school clothes when I was in junior high, and I had my first fashion collection in high school. And what's funny is that originally I was going to go to school for fashion design, and uh, the program became unavailable to the school I was going to go to. So, I decided to do graphic design instead. So, you know, during when I was in college, yeah, I was focusing mostly on graphic design, and that's when I got into photography, and I, um, you know, worked as a portrait photographer for a number of years. And then, um, you know, when I decided to, to touch back into fashion again, it really was because I needed clothes that I could wear that would work with my lifestyle. <laughs> so you actually <laughs> got into it because, because of a, a personal need you had. A, a per, absolutely, out of a personal practical need, Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, my first collection was um, mostly like T-shirts and jersey dresses, that sort of thing, because I'm kind of a, I'm kind of tall and I have long arms and things, so <laughs> I needed to find just a basic, comfortable, you know, shirt that was, you know, maybe a little bit dressy, but that was long enough or that was slim enough, um, something that would fit my body really well, and something that I could, you know, be comfortable in and be casual in, and then have to go straight to a cocktail party or something like that, so I can dress up or dress down. So. That's where it came from, and then, you know, it was so well-received, my first collection, that, you know, it just kind of went from there. Are you still doing photography? Because I was at your website the other day, and I saw you actually have a, a portfolio uh, up. Are you still doing photography? Yes, I do. I, do, I still do photography. Um, what's funny is I know everything I do is creative, but I consider my graphic design and photography my quote-unquote day job. And my, the fashion design is more of my creative passion, you know. 
Wow. So um, absolutely, I still I still work as a graphic designer and photographer all the time, and of course I use those skills to support my fashion line. So of course I do all my my marketing materials. I did my logo. I do my flyers, my website. Um, I've done a couple of my own photo shoots, like for my spring um, 2009 photo shoot. I did that myself. Mm. And you know, and I became acquainted with you because of your your fashion line. You um, and and what. What attracted me to your line was uh, your commitment to using natural materials, to producing eco couture, um, you know, wonderful designs that, that are environmentally friendly. And you're a good testament to the fact that just because a garment is made with natural materials, just because it's environmentally friendly, um, it's much, much more than just wearing a burlap sack. I mean, it's beautiful. You, you can be responsible and beautiful at the same time. Absolutely, and, you know, my first approach, of course, is, you know, I'm all about aesthetics, of course, so I want the the dress or whatever I'm making to look beautiful, and then, you know, if if you can, there's no reason why you shouldn't do something to support the environment. It's really not that difficult to to do something that will protect our environment, even if it's something small, you know, just by me choosing to use, you know, a natural material versus a synthetic material, um, in the long run, it will benefit, you know, our society as a whole much, much more. And I think that more designers should go that route. In, mm-hmm. you know, speaking of aesthetics, I, uh, I think I read somewhere where some of your designs or your designs are inspired by the ocean. And just for audiences uh, benefit, both you and I uh, called San Diego home. At, at one point, and so there's nothing more beautiful, I think, than the West Coast and, and the ocean there. Absolutely. <laughs> but, but talk about that integration between the, the ocean and, and any other, um, uh, any other like, even destinations that inspire you, because I also see, and this is just my eye, but I, I think I see some Asian influence in, in your designs. Am I off the mark or no? Well, my, I would say that my design style and my aesthetic is very international. Okay. Um, you know, uh, I try to appeal to everyone, not just on the basis of what is trendy, but I want to do something that is very worldly and that is very timeless so that um, anyone can relate to it. And, you know, a lot of that influence has come in my design from living in D.C. because it's such an international community. And um, funny enough, most of the people that have come up to me and said, I really love what you're wearing, if I'm wearing one of my pieces, have been people from other countries. Hmm. And they say, you know, this reminds me of, you know, something, you know, in my culture. And um, I think where that comes from is that in my studies of of art and in design, I took a lot of um, classes on art history. I studied Japanese art and African art and European art, and I did a lot of studies on humanity and anthropology, so um, world international culture has been something that's always um, influenced me and something that's always inspired me. Mm-hmm. And, and have your, your own personal travels uh, influenced you at all? Absolutely. Um, in 2009, I took a trip to um, Ibiza. It's an island mm-hmm. off the coast of Spain, and it was just so beautiful there. And the colors of, you know, the Mediterranean Ocean, it, it was just absolutely breathtaking to me. So my next collection, my spring um, 2010 collection, was completely inspired by the Mediterranean Ocean and the, the bright aqua colors and the, the shimmery, you know, satin fabrics. It kind of reminded me of, you know, what the sun looked like reflecting off of the ocean. 
Mm. And for each collection, I kind of have something slightly different that inspires me. So for my spring 2012 collection that I just showed, that one is inspired by um, the desert and the, the sunset um, in the desert over the desert mountains from where I grew up in San Diego, which is very kind of mauve and taupe with little hints of, you know, of turquoise and beige and white, that sort of thing. And, and what about the, the flower petal? Where does that come from? Because that's, that's kind of a signature emblem for you. It is, it is. Well, really, that was, you know, I'm, I've always had kind of a, a resourceful um, mindset, I would say, so um, I, I have all this remnant fabric left over from my collection that I've been saving since I started, since um, my first collection in 2008. And I had bags and bags of it, and I said, you know, I can't just throw this away. You know, I can do something really beautiful with this. So that's when I, you know, had the idea or the inspiration to create um, the flower petals. So, you know, I cut the fabric down into smaller pieces and was able to handcraft these flowers from it. And, um, you know, I think that they're, they're really beautiful. So I started, decided to incorporate that, you know, into more of my collection mm-hmm. and also found a way to recycle what otherwise would have been discarded. And, you know, one of the things that struck me when I when I first saw your collection in, in, the, in the flower petals is that it was kind of Billie Holiday-ish. You know, Billie Holiday, who I, I, I love, I love her okay. music, you know, wore the, um, she had her signature gardenia. And, you know, and, and so in some ways I kind of um, equate uh, what you're doing with your collection in the flower petal to, to Billie Holiday, um, who's, I think, one of the most remarkable artists of uh, Gali of last century and continues to be. <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know, I, I really love, uh, you know, the singers and standards and the old jazz. I mean, that's, I, that's what I listen to a lot. So a lot of my collection has been inspired by, you know, the 40s and the 50s, um, especially my, my fall... Uh, um, my fall 2011 collection for this year, um, in the style and in the way that I shot it, the way I styled the model's hair, it's very 50s inspired. So um, I think that um, classic beauty is something that I would like to capture. Mm-hmm. Um, that women can still be, be, you know, be sexy and have appeal, but also should be very classy. And that the clothing that we wear should absolutely be something that's timeless and something that we would keep in our closet and we can rewear over and over again. Absolutely. And, you know, really, that's that's my taste. I'm classic, but with a, with, with a, a flair, an artistic, you know, oomph. And, um, and I think that's what resonated with me as well when I, when I saw your collection uh, during the fashion show, the fashion week here. I want to circle back to your use of environmentally friendly materials. Do you think that the fashion industry is kind of moving towards a more responsible and conscientious paradigm? Because they haven't all been that way, and I know not all designers are, but is this a trend that, that we'll see, consumers will see going forward, do you think? I think so, and you know what I think is, it's a positive thing, but I think that what's a little bit unfortunate about it is that, you know, the design industry, it's still, it's still a business, and it's, it's a huge, huge business, the potential to make a lot of money. Of course, you know, designers, um, you know, mass produce most of their clothing, and they kind of, in order to appeal to the consumer, um, most designers design whatever is, is trending at the moment. So right now, the green movement and the eco movement is, is very trendy, and people are, you know, buying things because it's what the trend is, but I, I hope that it's something that will be sustained and that designers will actually take to heart that we need to protect our environment instead of just, you know, doing whatever the latest trend is. Because for me, it's something that I really want to be my life's work Mm -hmm. rather than just doing it because it's trendy. Well, I think that's a beautiful legacy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I feel like I, I would like to make more of a, um, 
an impression on people's hearts rather than just um, designing for the business side of it. It's something that I really feel passionate about, and I hope you know that I'll be remembered ultimately as a philanthropist as well as an artist. Well, I know you know this resonates with our listening audience, and so for their benefit, uh, I'd like to ask you to share your your website addresses. I know you have two: one for your graphic and photography, and one for your uh, your collection. Um, but I also wanted to ask you: is your uh, are any pieces from your collection available for purchase online, or available for custom order online? Absolutely. Uh, my website is www.aida.com. That's A-I-D-A-H.com. That's the website for my fashion collection. And I have an online store there, and um, you can browse um, the collection there. And when you order there, um, it includes a couture fitting, meaning, um, you know, I ask you your height, your weight, your measurements. We can actually meet in person. I can fit the garment to you, um, you know, if you're in the Washington, D.C. area or I'm able to travel and um, – it's really a, it's really custom made. I like to you know make garments that will make a woman feel more beautiful. It should fit you exactly right um, to make you confident, um, and you know to just better your your um, your personal. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of got mixed up there. <laughs> uh, could better your you know your your personal sense of well being. Mm-hmm. And how about showings? Uh, on your website, Aida.com, uh, do you have a list of where your collection may be seen uh, in a fashion show? I do. I have, I have my shows page where I keep all of my shows there um, updated. I'm doing um, Pink Rocks the Runway on October 21st, which is a benefit and fundraiser uh, for breast cancer awareness. And I'm doing a maternity runway show on um, the next day on October 22nd. And I'm showing my spring 2012 collection on um, pregnant women. Oh, so my gosh. That it, yeah, absolutely fits, you know, for maternity and for not maternity as well. And also on my website, I have links to my Tumblr page, which has all my press listings, like behind the scenes photos and videos. You can really kind of get to know the inspiration behind each collection and what, what drives me and inspires me. Excellent. And uh, any travel plan for your future? Um, you know, possibly. <laughs> I haven't, you know, settled on one particular place yet. Of course, I'm always going to go home to San Diego, and every time I go home, that that definitely inspires me. But, you know, right now I'm already thinking about my fall 2012 collection. <laughs> <laughs> well, we look forward to, to that showing. And, you know, I, I'm thinking Paris Runway. There's, you know, so many fashion shows over there. So I, I think... I think that's a, uh, a goal to aspire to and certainly uh, hope that you'll take your favorite uh, radio broadcast with you <laughs> so we can capture everything. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Aida Fontenot, thank you so much. And we will have links to your websites on uh, the show page, the radio show page on our website. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Fontenot. We are happy that you were able to join us today, and if you want more of World Footprints and everything that we have to offer, including travel deals and our library of archived shows, follow us, friend us, and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best. The Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. 
natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, that are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.